Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, posted on June 29th, 2012. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... We touch all plants, they respond. If you touch certain plants, we see them respond. And the easiest way of seeing that is the Venus flytrap, because we can see the movement. But anytime you touch any plant... There is a cellular and organismic response. That's Daniel Shamovitz. He's director of the MANA Center for Plant Biosciences at Tel Aviv University. And he's the author of the new book, What a Plant Knows. He was in New York City recently and dropped by the Scientific American offices. Daniel Shamovitz, great to see you. Thanks Thanks for for having me. Sure, thanks for coming in. What a Plant Knows is the name of the book. Let's start there. What does a plant know? plant knows quite a bit. A plant knows what color light it's seeing. It knows because it can see it. It knows when you're standing on it because it can feel it. It knows if its neighbor is sick because it can smell it. Um, it knows quite a bit, much more than we give them credit for. Now, let's let's talk about the word knows. Oh, okay. Yeah. Tell it's me controversial. What, of course. But, but it's a very um, clear way of getting across to the reader that the plant has ways to appreciate even the word appreciate i mean it's a it's a linguistic semantic minefield here but what do we actually mean by knows when i say no i'm talking about aware and being able to respond if you are aware that there's a red light on you know that there's a red light on you're you're aware of it and then you're responding In a certain way, when you are walking across the street in the middle of the night and you see a light coming towards you, when you see the light, you're aware of the light and you respond. You run away. When a plant sees a red light, it responds in a certain way. So I say it knows the light is red because if it would see a blue light or a green light, it would respond differently. And we're not saying the plant – maybe this is a way to get to it. The plant doesn't know that it knows. Now we're on a minefield here of philosophy. I don't think, and now I'm saying think, that a plant is self-aware. Now, one of my children, when he was 14, would claim that we don't, we only think we're self-aware, but we're not really either. Uh, we don't want to get into that, um, into right. that question. We can, we, you know. We're bringing some philosophers exactly. to discuss this. I'm, I'm not claiming that a plant is self-cognizant. Right. But on a very basic level, it knows what's going on. It knows what its environment was. And if it didn't, it wouldn't survive. And one of the really fascinating things about the book is that you discuss these conserved genetic programs. These these program we have the same genes to do a lot of the same things. I mean, even the the photoreceptor business, we have the same genes as plants have in some cases. Let's take this at two levels. One, definitely genetically. At the level of genes that are needed for a cell to function, plant cells and human cells are remarkably similar. You know, for example, plant, one of the big, um, surprises when they sequenced the plant genome in the year 2000, it was Arabidopsis was the plant. They found genes for breast cancer. You know, last time I looked at a plant, there weren't very many of those breasts. You know, they found genes for mental retardation. They found genes for deafness. Um, but it's sort of a misnomer calling it a gene for breast cancer or a gene for deafness because we define these genes by what happens when there's a mutation in them. Genes didn't evolve to cause disease. When they're mis-expressed, then we get the disease. These are all genes that are necessary for the cell to function in a certain way, for example, for cell division. 
And since we all evolved from single cellular organisms, the same genes that would be necessary for cell division that were present before photosynthetic and non-photosynthetic eukaryotes diverged would also be found between humans and plants. It's sort of silly that we didn't even think that that would be the case. Right. When you look at it from an evolutionary point of view, you would assume that that would be the case. Exactly. But because when we look at plants, there's, we don't even, we can't identify with them. They're so different. So we assume that genetically they're majorly, majorly different. Now, there are certain things, of course, that don't exist in animals and in plants that aren't conserved. Genes for photosynthesis, genes for flower development, the genes you need, you need to make a leaf, just like you don't have genes that you need to make a, a neuron. But for example, a gene that's needed to make a, a like a hair-like filament coming out of a cell, which make the the hairs in our ears, what we call hairs, they're not really hairs. Right. You know, they're cellular projections. It's a myosin gene. A same type of myosin gene in plants is involved in making the little hair-like structures that come out of roots. Right, because that's a successful program that many different exactly. organisms need to make these kinds of structures. And so the gene, which originated, what, two billion years ago, maybe... You know, it's divergent at the nucleotide sequence, but in terms, we could still recognize that they're the same gene. Mm-hmm. And that's how I actually got to this question of conservation, because I really was not interested in studying anything that could smell like medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was a postdoc at Yale University in the mid-early 1990s, I was studying what's called photomorphogenesis, how a plant changes its structure in response to light and dark signals. Nothing you could think of could be more plant-specific than a plant opening its leaves in the light. You know, we like to go to Florida and get a tan, but we don't really, you know, grow a new set of uh, hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I cloned these first genes that were involved in photomorphogenesis, they were really unique in, in all of biology, which fit, in, which fit well to our hypothesis that this was a plant-specific process. Mm-hmm. But the kicker came one day when I was sort of bored at the end of my postdoc and was just playing on the computer. And just then the early drafts of the human genome, the cDNA sequences were coming out. No one knew what these sequences were. I was just playing on the computer and put my genes in. And these plant-specific genes for photomorphogenesis were in the human genome. And do we know what they were doing in the human genome? Then we did had no idea. It was Mm -hmm. a real kicker because I didn't want to touch the human genome. I was just sort of playing. Um, Now we know that these same proteins have the same biological function in cells between humans and plants. In plants, when there's a mutation in it, there's an effect in photomorphogenesis. In animals, when there's a defect in it, there's an effect, one of the, one of the outcomes is cancer. Because all these things have to do with basic, basic exactly. processes like growth and like you said before, cell division right. or the way cells talk to each other. Well, this particular protein is involved in what was called the ubiquitin proteasome pathway, how proteins are degraded. In plants, the main process is photomorphogenesis. In animals, maybe the main process is cell division. Mm-hmm. Let's talk really quickly sure. about the different sections of the book. Um, you, you basically divide it up into our senses, the senses that we're familiar with, sight, smell, uh, hearing, touch. So real quickly, what does a plant see? A plant sees what we see. A plant sees light. But plants don't see pictures. But on a certain level, plants might think that we're um, visually uh, limited because plants see things that we can't see. They see outside of our spectrum. Spectrum. They see UV light Mm -hmm. and they see far red light, you know, and we... We can't see that at all. 
or to make some people happy, they have receptors that get activated by those wavelengths of light. I want to continue light. using the word see. Okay. And I'll let, can I go on on that sure, for one sure. second? So if you take someone who's completely blind mm -hmm. and by surgery in some way, giving them a camera, allow them to see just shadows, would we say that that person now has rudimentary sight? Mm -hmm. He doesn't see pictures, but that for that person, being able to differentiate shadows is definitely sight. If we would let them be able to differentiate between red and blue, then that would be even a slightly more sight. That's what plants do. They don't see pictures, but they see colors. Mm -hmm. They see directions. They see intensities. So I think we can say that plants see. And smell. Smell, yeah. They... Well, well, plants smell... <laughs> plants smell because we smell them. You gotta get... Right. <laughs> right. How do you keep that, a fish yeah, from exactly. smelling yeah. and cut off its nose? Exactly. But the other meaning, they can... They can, they can, de now if we want to become very scientific, they mm -hmm. can detect volatile chemicals that are wafting through the air. Right. You know, what is smelling? You know, that's some type of chemical in the air, ammonia, Chanel number no. five, garlic. You know, we, it goes through the air and our receptors in the nose, we smell it. And you get some type of response. Some of it we're cognizant of and some of it we're not. You know, when we start salivating, we haven't chosen to salivate when we smell a barbecue. It just happens. Um, same thing with a plant. It has, well, we assume there are more. So far, they've only found one receptor. But we know that plants do respond to more than one type of chemical. And when they get these chemicals through the air, they respond. One of the ways that they're responding is to their neighbor being sick. Mm -hmm. um, and so, for example, if a neighboring leaf is eaten by an insect or a bacteria, the plants will release a chemical in the air. The neighboring plants will absorb that chemical and immediately start making other chemicals that will kill the bugs, for example. So it makes them resistant. And you talk in the book about experiments to try to determine whether that's actually a, a communication mm -hmm. device from one individual plant to another and the outcome of those experiments leads researchers well, to believe it's really something else. It's probably a combination of two. On one hand, it probably evolved for communication between branches. There's no direct connection of tissues from one branch to the other. For them to be connected, there's a lot of pipes you have to go through. But if you can, can if one branch can warn its neighboring branch through a volatile signal, it's a much quicker thing. So then you have a neighboring tree that's sort of listening in. Mm -hmm. It's eavesdropping on its plant and it also benefits from this conversation. Now you can make all types of evolutionary models. Is there an advantage for your neighbors to also know this so that the he protects you. Um, evolutionarists are, or ecologists are split on whether there's an advantage or disadvantage to this. Right. We need Bill Hamilton and a lot of yeah. intricate mathematics. Yeah. There's a, and mathematicians love this type of thing. Right. Right. So. And also it depends, you know, for example, if it's an aspen grove, that's actually all one right, plant. Right. Uh, and what a plants can, clearly plants, feel something. I mean, if you touch certain plants, they immediately respond. Yeah. Well, first of all, if you touch all plants, they respond. If you touch certain plants, we see them responding. Right. And the easiest way of seeing that is the Venus flytrap, because we can see the movement, you know, less than one-tenth of a second and it closes. Mm -hmm. But anytime you touch any plant, there is a cellular and organismic response. And that's because when are plants touched? They're touched in the wind, for example. So if you see a tree that's on the top of a mountain and the same tree in a valley, the one on the top will be short and stunted, and the one in the valley will be long with a beautiful um, foliage. If it's being shaken by the wind, it needs to put its energy into making a solid trunk. And that's what touch does. It helps it let know what's its environment. Mm -hmm. 
you talk about the fly trap to uh, a large extent in the book. And for Calcium Channel fans out there, you're really going to enjoy the explanations of what goes on. It's all chemical, electrochemical it, signaling. It, and what's funny about this, yes, it is all electrochemical signaling. And what's funny about that, that we've known that for over 100 years. One of the first people to study the electricity in that was actually the same person who studied potentials in frog nerves, a British scientist. I just drew a blank on his name. Mm-hmm. But somehow or another, like often happens in plant biology, and I'm a little paranoid here, is that then the animal biologists take it over and forget that the plants knew about this originally. It's really scary. You know, there's no, not scary, it's amazing that there are no nerves. There are no neurons in plants, but you don't necessarily see neurons for communication. Neurons are one evolutionary adaptation to allow communication. Right. We think of it as the one because it's the one we, we have. have. Right. So it's our default for that, but we're but, another variation exactly. on the thing. But so when you touch the hairs on a Venus flytrap, you're getting ion channels activated, which is causing a depolarization. And when the t- depolarization goes over a certain threshold, then it closes and you get the electric signal propagating throughout the entire leaves. So that's how it closes. That's very neural. And I'm doing that in um, quotation marks. Air quotes here. Yeah, air quotes. There are, I, I have to emphasize, there are no neurons. But the same basic mechanism is very similar. Let's let's jump sure. a couple of chapters since we're talking about the flytrap. You you have a chapter on uh, on plants and what they can remember, and the flytrap also is a great yeah. example of the kinds of memory and it's all chemical functioning that that plants can exhibit. Well, we if we define memory as having some information, storing it, and recalling, you know, plants don't remember being in the seed pod. You know, they don't yearn for the, you know, for last year's sunshine. But that's, you know, we don't need to anthropomorphize when we say memory. So if we take the Venus flytrap, in order for it to close, a bug or a little animal has to touch two hairs. So one hair needs to be touched. It needs to remember that that hair was touched. Once the second one is touched, it'll close. But only if it's within about a half a minute. And that's the way that the trap knows it's the right size. Right. Because if it's interested. Because there's a, again, a game. It wants, again, air quotes. It doesn't want to close, which takes a lot of energy if it's not going to get a lot of food. So it wants it to be a big bug. Once, again, air quotes. I'm using these words because it challenges us to think, you know, about ourselves. So you get really some type of short term memory. You touch one hair, wait 20 seconds, touch the other hair, it'll close. Wait a minute, it won't close. It has forgotten that the first hair was touched. And the mechanism is all electricity. The potential has gone below the threshold. Right. There's a there's a buildup of ions mm-hmm. in this channel that then dissipates. Right. And once it gets below a certain level, the memory is, is lost. Which is similar to some of our memory, the way some of our memory mechanisms, there's many memory mechanisms in animals also. Some electric, some genetic, some a mixture of both. Now, interestingly... The, the chapter on hearing sort of comes out differently than all the other chapters. And because everyone assumes not a, that plants hear. And a lot and of like, that comes from the 70s when people were singing to their plants and playing Mozart for the plants. And using, you know, Indian music to their plants. But if you, I don't want to say that plants don't hear, but there's no hard evidence. If you look in public PubMed database, look what's been published. And that's the only thing we can go on. There's no evidence that plants really respond to music. Now, I want to differentiate here between music and hearing. 
why would we think that a plant would care whether it's, you know, meatloaf or Led Zeppelin or Bach? You know, when we're talking about plant vision, we don't show them an eye chart and say, read the bottom line. When we're talking about plant smelling, we don't say them differentiate between Chanel number no. five and Dior. You know, so why would we think music? If we're going to think of plant hearing, we need to think of experiments that might be ecologically relevant. You know, maybe something like subsonic waves through the ground or the very high pitch of an insect. Mm -hmm. But music? What's the relevance? So again, but getting back to music, so many people have tried these experiments and there's all types of new age experiments that say that plants are affected. But the interesting thing is, is that in all those experiments, the plants grew better in the music that the experimenter uh, uh, liked better. Mm -hmm. And to a large extent, these experiments collapse down to a, a sense, the, the sensation of the sound wave itself. It's, it's the equivalent of being touched. Yeah, and I will accept that, that, sound, that auditory is sound waves. And if someone will show that a plant responds to sound waves, that'll be great. Um, but so far, no one's been able to show that. I'm not, I would actually predict that we will find that in the future. Well, there's one experiment you talk about where there was a speaker sound coming at the plant, and then the experimenters put in a fan so that... There was no heat coming off the speaker. So most of these experiments have just been done poorly. You know, these are classic experiments that are also done by kids in sixth grade and by... For science yeah, For projects, science projects. Right. And you need to do a good control. So when they put the fan in and the... It blew the heat, the away. heat away that was coming from right. the speaker at the plant. The effect right. went away. You know, one of the researchers into touch, uh, a very good, excellent scientist named Janet Bram, um, who's now at Rice University, used to be in Stanford. She was one of the people who recognized genetically how plants respond to touch. And she was, one of her experiments in this seminal paper was then to expose her plants to, well, I guess she likes the talking heads. And she mm -hmm. exposed her plants to the talking heads, seeing if these same genes would go up. And they didn't. So you talk, one of the great parts of the book, there's a lot of Darwin in the book. Darwin was great. <laughs> Darwin, Darwin was so much smarter than people even realized. But uh, he played his bassoon for, to plants. Darwin played his bassoon. It was one of his experiments, one of his later experiments. But he was also smart enough to say, I think it was in his own words, that this was a fool's experiment. And he didn't see any response. He tried to get them to, to bend towards his bassoon music. Mm -hmm. He was, his final book was called The Power of Movement in Plants. We still teach that to freshmen and undergraduate students. Um, his experiments from 1880 are still being taught and validated. It was an amazing piece of work. Yeah, he did such meticulous, long-term work with his son mm -hmm. on plant growth and discovered many of the basic things that we know about plants. And some of it's still being studied. For example, he was showing how a plant responds to gravity and how plants move. You, some of you may have seen or you may have seen time-lapse movies of plants sort of what's called circumnutating. They turn around in circles, but you can only see this with time-lapse photography. And Darwin was asking the question, is this an endogenous behavior of plants or is it a response to gravity? Now, he didn't have the way of answering those questions. Um, but now, his own hypotheses are being checked in the space station. Right. That was a fascinating that part of the yeah. book. As you're reading the book, it, it, the thought occurs to you, 
boy, if we could do these experiments in space, it would be a really interesting right. way to figure out whether the plant can appreciate gravity. And then you talk about yeah. the fact that they did do these experiments in space. Right. And in space, what it ends up is that the, the, the movements are minute. Mm-hmm. But they still remain. Now, that could be because of micro-microgravity. There's no way of controlling for that yet. There's minute movements that when you then give a uh, gravitational pull, become large. So there is seems to be an endogenous movement, which is then enhanced by gravity. You talk about this other experiment in which the researcher basically, uh, like if you saw the movie 2001, and you see the guy running. How? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, on, on the periphery, on the circumference. Around of, how? Right, of the <laughs> rotating yeah. wheel, because that creates an artificial gravity. And so this experimenter created a spinning wheel, spinning really fast, yeah. and put the plants in there to see if the acceleration, which would be the equivalent of gravity, would cause them to know up from down. And it, that's exactly what happened. Their movements became exaggerated as soon as they were put in this sort of centrifuge. Um, so they had minute movements of one or two or even half a millimeter, which then increased to centimeter circumferences when you put a gravitational pull on it. Let's take a minute to talk about Arabidopsis because it's such a fascinating organism. It's the fruit fly of plants. Definitely. And most people probably don't know how how uh, crucial it's been for botanical research, but genetic research in general also. Mm-hmm. So tell us about Arabidopsis and what is it and, and how did it become this, this uh, lab rat? Well, Arabidopsis is a little mustard plant. I think it's called an English thalecrest, even though if you'd ask someone what a thalecrest looks like, they wouldn't know. It's quite unremarkable, except for a couple of things that botanists about a half a century ago recognized. One, that it's small with a very quick generation time. That means it could go from seed to seed in about two months, even six weeks. Two, each plant gives about 20,000 seeds. And three, it has a small genome, a very small amount of DNA. What this meant for plant scientists is that we could do amazing genetic and genomic experiments in a small amount of time, which means if you want to do your PhD on sequoias, you'd be 90 by the time you graduated. But on Arabidopsis, you could actually start asking amazing questions. 90? You'd be, you'd be 900. Okay, 900. Okay. So because of work of early botanists who understood this small plant, it was adopted by the molecular genetic community in the 1980s as a model plant. At that time, a lot of people derided it. What are you going to do with that little mustard? But now we know because of the Human Genome Project and all the work that's gone into Arabidopsis. When I say Human Genome Project, part of the Human Genome Project gave the resources and the money to sequence the Arabidopsis genome because it was used as a model and from studies on this little plant, which it itself has no economic benefit, has led to huge huge um, advances both in agriculture and in human medicine because you can do experiments much quicker, um, clone genes, find out what they're doing in this plant and then adopt it in other organisms. For example, the genes for flowering time, what makes a plant flower, were all discovered in Arabidopsis. Some of it was then applied into tree breeding, for example, to cause poplar trees to, to flower at six months rather than at three years, and so then you could do breeding. So if you're trying to uh, grow a, a crop that's resistant to a particular pest, for example, or, uh, or a disease, a virus, 
uh, Arabidopsis might be the organism that you try things out well, in. You would definitely try it out in Arabidopsis. And until you know, recently, it was the only organism with a genome. Now we have other genomes of other plants. For example, the tomato genome just was published, which is immensely important because there's also diversity among plants. What's good for Arabidopsis isn't good for all plants. Tomato does might respond differently. There are pathogens that are specific for tomato and their path for the Salonum species. And there are pathogens that are specific for Arabidopsis, which are the Brassica species of plants. But the basic paradigms that have been outlined in Arabidopsis have held for all plants. And it's also been used to study certain human diseases, like I mentioned earlier with our own research in Arabidopsis. So what is it you said in the book? You, you have how many... MDs in your family? Six, Four. seven? Six and two on the way. <laughs> two on the are, are your sons? Or? No, no, not mine. Right. My, my niece and one of my cousin's children. Uh -huh. So this is why you you really wanted to not do medicine. You wanted yeah, to do... Yeah, my, my, my psychologist probably could tell you more about that. But yeah, you know, when your father's an uncle, your father is a doctor and your three uncles are doctors and your sister's a doctor, there's a little bit of familial pressure um, to go into medicine. And I was really looking to do something that was completely original. And also, when I was 18, I'd been working on a kibbutz, a farm in Israel. And I was really, really blown away by the idea that you could grow different crops in different ways. I knew nothing about plants. And I was working in alfalfa fields. No, and when you cut alfalfa, it grows back. I knew nothing about why. And I was saying, wow, if you could put that trait into like wheat or corn, you could really solve world hunger. Now, that was a really naive thing because we now, it's all about where the growing part is. It's above ground, below ground. But that's what got me interested in the idea of how can we feed the world. And with all due respect to cancer and Alzheimer's, which are hideous diseases that we have to cure, if we don't find a way of getting enough food to everyone in the year 250 when there's 9 billion people in the world. 2050. Yeah, 2050. Um, you know, we're going to be in major troubles. You know, I had the opportunity to meet Norman Borlaug. Uh, the most important person of the, of the past century. Yeah, which, again, most people probably haven't heard of him. Right. But why don't you just briefly tell everybody what he you did? You know, he really worked. He was a wheat breeder. And he did the second green revolution in our understanding of how to control wheat growth and how to make uh, um, the wheat breeding uh, work for for the for modern times. For which he won a Nobel Peace was, Prize. Exactly, not the Nobel Prize in in, in chemistry, <laughs> the Nobel Peace Prize. Right, um, and that's gone unnoticed by the scientific community at large. You know, many of my colleagues, um, you know, just don't want to accept the fact that plants are complex organisms or as important as human biology for for the future of the world. I'm talking about, you know, professors, big professors in universities around the world. It's not specific for Tel Aviv University. It's also in, you know, NYU or in Columbia, you know. Oh, plant biology sometimes takes a second seat to human biology. And that's a shame because we might find ourselves in major troubles one day. And we need to encourage our best young minds to be going into these fields, to be solving these problems. Look, by, again, 2050, we're going to have to grow twice as much food, but with less water, Less fertilizer, less land. The amount of fertilizers we have are, you know, is also limited. So how are we going to do that? We really need to be able to understand at a very deep level, I would call it a systems level, how plants adapt and respond to their environment and so that we can manipulate this. Tell us about your current research. So in my lab, we're working on two things. First, these genes that I 
I identified and cloned over 20 years ago when I was at Yale. We still don't know how this complex works. This is basic biology. We're trying to understand how a protein complex is built and why this protein complex needs eight subunits in order to do what it does. We even don't even know everything it does. This is work that's being done in Arabidopsis and in Drosophila because we're doing a we're taking a comparative evolutionary developmental approach, seeing what we can learn from both of them, and then extrapolating one to the other. And in a new project in my lab, um, which sort of started just by accident, as sort of like a side thing, we're trying to figure out why Arabidopsis and other brassica make a drug that is used in cancer therapy. You know, plants make this thing called glucosinolates, which are which are a plant chemical which protects them against um, bugs. Um, some of these have been used in natural medicine against uh, uh, cancer, one of them. And some of them have been used, you know, we know that in cell cycle they stop, in, cells, in cell research they can actually stop cell cycle. And so the question I'm asking my lab using Arabidopsis is why do plants make these? Is it just in case a bug comes or does it have a role also in the plant? And what we found, very preliminary results, is that it could also stop cell cycle in the plants which is what you would want for an anti-cancer drug. This, you talk in the book about the, uh, the broccoli. Right. Somebody, somebody with cancer was right. so, advised so, to use this broccoli extract. Exactly. And so the, the chemical we're talking about comes from broccoli, but broccoli and Arabidopsis are both brassica. They're very, very, very similar genetically. Now, first of all, I should say, do what your doctor says. Right. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely you know. Right. But the fact that there are what we call in Hebrew grandmother stories that say, you know, you take these... Bobamices. exactly. Um, and some of those, there's truth behind them, but there's not been enough research done on it. A lot of the reason is because you can't patent these things. You know, drug companies aren't interested in it. So we're trying to use plants as a model to understand what are these drugs actually doing? What are these chemicals doing? And again, what we've shown in Arabidopsis is that when they're made, the cells stop dividing, which is exactly what you'd want to happen. Now the question is why? what you'd want to happen for a drug that would fight cancer. Pretty exciting times to be a uh, plant biologist with the genomic information oh, that's available. Yeah, it's, you know, I think this new genomic information that's coming out of tomato is going to revolutionize both science, our understanding of developmental biology, and of agriculture, because now we'll be able to really do breeding at the level of the gene. It's going to be really, really a lot of fun going on. By the way, Daniel Shamovitz's book, What a Plant Knows, is the first print title published by a new imprint called Scientific American slash Farris, Strauss, and Giroux, because we and they have teamed up to produce popular science books. Other authors of the new Siam FSG books will appear on the podcast in the coming months. We'll be right back after this message from Jeff Marsh at The Nature Podcast. This week, the Australopithecus diet five unknowns about bird flu, and ambitious plans to save the Baltic Sea. Just go to www.nature.com slash podcast. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the slideshow on the beauty revealed by science. It's called Empirical Aesthetics. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.
what I said. So if he can't move, how's he gonna sit down, George? I was a stand-up tomato, a juicy, sexy beefsteak tomato. Nobody does vegetables like me. I did an evening of vegetables off Broadway. I did the best tomato, the best cucumber. I did an